So yeah, so it had a big set of hands, a praying hands, and they had it in a circle with obviously the prohibited sign through it, which I found quite interesting. Initially, I was trying to figure out what do they mean? Do they mean that we would prefer that we have this protest as to the normal things? Obviously, today they have their, the procession through Trafalgar Square where they depict the resurrection of Christ. Were they competing with that? And saying that we'd rather not have that, but we'd rather have this. Or the next thing that went through my mind was, were they saying that we don't want Christians to come? But then I think more reasonable minds actually kind of interpreted and said, actually, this is not a time for prayer. The praying hands, I believe, were a symbol of action is needed, not prayer. Let's not pray that it will get well. Let's just assume that we need to do something in order to motivate people to change the way that they live their lives. Now, what was interesting that when I, gave, when, I, when I was thinking about this and walked away, I said, wow, I, I should have taken a photo. And the next day when I went back to try and take a photo of this to say, this is the kind of statements, they had removed that bottom poster. No doubt someone had obviously picked up to the cost cutters and said, are you really having a poster in your shop with no praying hands, with no prayer or whatever? But it gives us a picture of what social justice says about the Christian walk of life. Those things within the Christian life which are actually quite valuable. What it really says when you look at it as a cultural symbol is that prayer is an inactive thing. Prayer is not action. Prayer, trying to invoke God's verdict, trying to invoke God's Activity is not really being active. So we're living in a world right now which basically says spiritual things have no real value in our practical daily lives. And the danger for us is that we can actually buy into it. And break the tension between our earthly existence and our spiritual reality. We are in danger, if we buy into this, of not believing the values of corporate prayer. We are in danger of devaluing the public reading of Scripture. And there being actually somebody there to listen to it, as opposed to there just being one person there to just speak it. There is also a danger of corporate worship. Now, worship not just in the sense of singing, but the fact of the assembly of ourselves together, which is what the actual word ecclesia means. The assembly of God's people. We're in danger of thinking that these things are only important to us if we have an active role in it and not a passive one. If I'm here and I'm, and I'm needed to do, do something, I'm available. But if I'm not, and ultimately, if it means I have to just come and be a part of something, then I have better things to do. So I'm hoping that this, as I go through this and, and teach about the whole idea that our spiritual reality, in light of the resurrection, has true significance, that hopefully it might change at least some of our, uh, our approaches to our Christian life.
that somehow we will, if needs be, break the tension towards a more better glorified earthly life to now starting to break that tension and push towards the spiritual. Today I want to look at the resurrection. You know, it's great to kind of like, I said, you know, I had a, a bit of a struggle and said, Lord, where do I do? Do I look at the resurrection and just point to the fact of it as a historical thing? Or should I maybe look at something about how practical spiritual life is? And I, I, I erred on the side of saying, let me show the people how the apostles in the first century lived within the reality of the resurrection how it changed their perspective on life. And so today I want to share with you from 2 Corinthians 7 and look at what Paul believed the resurrection did to change the perspective, his perspective on suffering. So if you turn with me there, I would like to read, then I would like to pray, and then I would like to break that down for you. So when you are there, you may say amen. Thank you. All right. So reading from the ESV, it says this. Verse 7. Verse 7 to the end of the chapter. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. In every way, but not despair. Sorry, let me read that again. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we, are, we also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that, he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful this morning that you have brought us here on this Resurrection Sunday, dear God, to glory in the fact that, Lord, as your church, we have indeed obtained grace. And we have obtained, more than that, we have obtained hope. Hope that, Lord God, that more than the fact that you had actually died for our sins and that we might actually feel that we have peace with you, and merely that, but, Lord, you have extended to give us even more so that the resurrection tells us, not only will, have I given you peace, I have given us, given you the grounds to say that you may enjoy it eternally with our Father God. And Lord, that's what the resurrection means and tells us there, Lord God, that we will live in that peace forever because Christ is that first fruit of that new humanity in which we now are a part of there, Lord God, through belief in your Son. Father, help us as we break this down and maybe reflect on what this means to our own lives right now. Lord, I know I'm not really teaching new things here, Lord, today, but I pray that, Father, even in the reminder that new things will come to heart, to light, that it will change our hearts, dear Lord God, and soften our hearts to be able to respond and be able to 
incorporate these things into our life. So, Lord, we, we give ourselves to you. Be with us all, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's the bigger picture of 2 Corinthians? Well, before I go into the historical context of who Paul was dealing with, let me just briefly kind of highlight what has happened before. So the bigger picture of 2 Corinthians is Paul's defense of his ministry in light of charlatans who have come and appealed to the culture of the Corinthians who are saying, Paul is not really the kind of apostle you need right now. You really need someone who's going to be able to show you how to live big in God. So these charlatans that have come along have very lavish lifestyles and they have convinced the Greek that ultimately they represent, they are the better picture of what the gospel is in light of Judaism. The Corinthians found it easy to buy into this because that's what the culture already wanted. It was, how can I get a vision of God that will help me to live big? So that basically, as I gain the, 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 the status, as I grow in the cultural status, people will assume that I'm more spiritual. That ultimately, only the spiritual, the true, the ones that are truly close to God, ultimately rise up the ladder. So this type of gospel appealed, which is no gospel at all, as Paul would say, appealed to them. And no doubt, living in circum, circum, similar circumstances in, the, in what this cultural values, no doubt we can identify with the temptation to think that maybe God is calling me to live a bigger life and ultimately that is what ought to testify to the world to be converted to Christianity. Come, this is where the easy life is. This is where all troubles and all financial worries and all health issues fade away. What ultimately you find being covered and pulled tackling, as many commentators will say, in both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, is this over-realized eschatology. So eschatology speaking of end things, and ultimately, what, when you over-realize it, you ultimately say, we don't need to look to heaven, no pie in the sky. We ultimately really need to look to make the best world we possibly can right now because this is as good as it gets. And then ultimately, what we look forward to in heaven from a Greek mindset was that we have a disembodied existence in bliss and we can at least reflect back in that disembodied existence in bliss that, yeah, we once had bodies, but we're so much better now. So best to live the best bodily existence we can right now, right? As, you, as I get to that, we'll realize that we are not heading towards a disembodied resurrection, a disembodied end times. The best bodily existence we're going to have lays ahead of us. <clears throat> Paul has just been arguing in, in the chapter 4 about this whole idea of this Moses style of ministry, which obviously these Jews who have come in as these charlatan apostles have modeled themselves on and says, well, we really model ourselves not really on Jesus, but really on Moses. And for them, they have this warped vision of Moses as being this superstar prophet. You know, who had to walk around with a veil on his face because of the glory of God. And so, to some extent, they were saying, well, we really kind of more are understanding Jesus through Moses. As opposed to, we really actually understand Moses through Jesus. That's where you say they have got the wrong hermeneutic. The wrong teaching method because it is actually Jesus who shows you who Moses really was as opposed to them looking all the way back to Moses to figure out what type of Messiah we really need. 
and ultimately the humility of Moses escapes them. Because now they see him as the big superstar prophet who had to come down in the mountain wearing a veil and ultimately they're saying, well, we're, we're really like him. We need to give you the revelation. We really need to show you who God is. You can't know that for yourself. And to them, the gospel is veiled. Like Moses' face was veiled, these false apostles, these false disciples, cannot see the gospel that lies in front of them and the humility in which God is calling them to, to model. So therefore they hide in these ivory towers, really masking, which are not really, again, their, their spiritual position, but really are actually them masking what their lives are really like. Hence Paul has to defend himself in the earlier parts of chapter 4 by saying, we are not cunning and underhanded and doing all these other things, which ultimately is blowing smoke in your eyes so that you don't really see who they are. You're cunning and you're underhanded because you don't really want to see people, want people to see what you're really doing. And Moses says, and Paul says, Moses never did this. And we are not doing this. But what we are presenting to you is the gospel pure through Christ Jesus. And ultimately, what he says about the veil is that ultimately this, this seeming veil of, of the glory of God is so great that ultimately I can't really show it all to you. It's, it's basically obscuring their view of the gospel. Because again, as I said, they've got the wrong hermeneutic. They're trying to interpret Moses or Jesus through Moses as opposed to the other way around. If Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses... And, everything, and the foundation in which Moses laid, then ultimately I really need to say, well, how did Jesus live his life and how did he reveal the law and all that Moses set up? What does it really mean to be a Jew? What does it really mean to be sanctified and be set apart? And finally, as he kind of breaks down his argument, as we jump into, into our text, he says, ultimately, these people don't even have a servant heart. Paul's ultimate defense of his apostleship is that I am a servant of Christ. I have no, I have no desire to, to present myself as being anything more than a servant. This presented a problem to the Corinthians who wanted to have big leaders. They wanted the leaders that, that rolled into church with the Lexus. We have to be honest. They wanted the kind of leaders who had, you know, the big salaries, the suburban lifestyle, and they wanted that to be the model of what we, we really actually hold there and true to be the gospel. Our leaders are, are the leaders amongst society. That anybody can look up to them, no matter what their, their religious persuasion is. And, and Paul wasn't that. Paul, I mean, even to add on to that, Paul wasn't even the physical model of what they wanted by what we read from the text. That he didn't have even the gym body that maybe could have actually have, have, have negated all the other stuff that he didn't have. <laughs> At least he's a picture of health. <laughs> but even that, Paul couldn't present them for. He said, I'm you know, he, he looked at himself as not really being much to look at. So this letter-long defense of his 
of his apostleship really knuckles down to really actually seeing how Paul saw himself in light of the gospel as opposed to how the culture saw him as someone who seemingly followed God. And ultimately, rather than criticize himself, he's now criticizing the culture for not having the right values because actually, if you teach the gospel correctly, Paul actually fit right in to the model of who Christ was and even who Moses was. People who lay down their lives for the people, ultimately, not because it, not because it detracted from what they were doing, but even as they sacrificed themselves, it was their giving their life so that these people can actually live. It's a picture of the cross. As I give my life for these people, they will actually be more living and they will come to life. So let's break down this verse by verse. Looking at verse 7. So how does he now build this picture and defend himself in light of the gospel and say, actually, it's your culture that has mistaken what leaders ought to look like. So he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. So now here he's speaking into our mortal, into our mortality. Jars of clay. In, a, in, 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 the, in the original context, maybe again, it's kind of strange because as I, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of bargain hunt, all the rest of it. Earthenware is expensive, right? Because it's one of those things now that we can lose the context of that because hardly anybody does these, these, these trades anymore where you're going to spin a vase, all the rest of it. But back in those days, everybody was doing it. So maybe the best context we have to look at it is think back to our school days when we had our pottery days and, you know, the cheap and inexpensive things that we were making. That would, you know, that when they broke, ultimately, you know, mum might pretend to have, a, a, you know, heartbroken, but ultimately it's almost like that eyesore is now gone. <laughs> Such as I remember my pottery days. And that's, he's given a quality to our, our earthly life, which is basically we are fragile and inexpensive. Now, this is not to speak of us as a human being in totality, but it's, he's looking merely at us as a biological entity. All those things which the scientists will, will say, well, this is the essential part of being a human, and all this stuff about a mind and spirit and all the rest of it, that's just mumbo-jumbo. Essentially, we're just a biological unit, and it's this in which Paul points at, points at and says, this is not the most valuable part of you being a human being. It has some significance. Bodily exercise. But ultimately, if I had to put a value on it in light of what I'm about to teach, I have to say that it's the treasure, we have a treasure, which is the gospel inside these biological units which are cheap and inexpensive and fragile and prone to crack. But why is this? And why do the scientists attack the fact that we have a spirit and a soul all the time? Because ultimately it comes down to this issue of autonomy, right? Because if we give over the fact that we are, we are not merely biological units, then ultimately we now give, as Paul says in the latter part, the, surpass, the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. If, if I'm merely a biological unit, then ultimately... I can say that I am me and I can look within me and ultimately I will be, I only look to me. But now if I say there is some part of me, some God particle inside me which makes me a living soul, all of a sudden I realize that it's not actually me I can glory in. That part that makes me a living soul has to have come from somewhere else. 
And from a scientific point of view, if you now try to challenge where that comes from, no one can tell you where it comes from. The coding for DNA. And all these things, it's, it's some kind of God mystery. And this itself is, is, is Paul's way, not necessarily speaking to that scientific argument, but speaking and saying that ultimately the real part of you that has real value and eternal value is that which God commands. And God has sway over. Then he now goes into those words which, again, I know I've used no, numerous times and I've come, and especially in the context of where I work, um, where people are nervous about their, you know, where they're going to be, which side of the border they're going to end up on. And, you know, just to remind them that even as they are struggling, and no doubt as you have been, maybe have been encouraged by these particular things, is that when we are to reflect on the fact that, look at the difficulties you're going through, and ultimately, do you really feel as hopeless as it seems? And as you, actually, as we look at it, and maybe, again, are a bit more honest with ourselves, the whole idea of saying, well, actually, yeah, I've been crushed. People are really trying to, people are trying to squeeze me out. Maybe someone in work is trying to squeeze you out of a position. But I'm, I'm, I'm cool, actually. I want to move jobs anyhow. I really like the atmosphere around here. And when you look at it, there is actually something positive that you might grasp. This, isn't, this doesn't really feel like the end of my world. Yeah, I've been perplexed. I really don't know where I'm going to go right now. I really don't know what the next thing to do. Maybe this is a simple thing where you're lost. But you're not in despair. Yeah, people are having a go at me. People are knifing for me. But I know God is for me. I'm not forsaken. I'm struck down. But you know what? That's still going on. It's that second look at your situation and saying, actually, is this as bad as it really is? I want to give an illustration here that I felt was quite helpful for me when I was reflecting on how do I now illustrate this and say, what's really going on here? And as I was feeling the glimmers of summer, it just came to me. Every believer, in particular I mean believers, lives in two realities. They live in two seasons. In their earthly reality, in the earthliness of your life, you are living in autumn, moving into winter. You are dying, moving into death. And we feel that around us as we obviously what autumn to winter represents is the season where there is a bit of life and we still see some aspects of life. We still feel a little bit of the heat, a little bit of the grace that summer has been. But we're now moving to that point where we, we suddenly realize that things will eventually die. All the leaves will fall off the tree. I will get older. Ultimately, I will start to lose the people that are most dearest to me, especially as they get older and older. It's, it's the fact that that's the reality in which we live in, in an earthly sense. We are moving from autumn to winter And we're having to face death. But as a, a believer, I also live within the season of spring. From a spiritual perspective, I am now moving from living to life. As a spiritual being, I'm starting to see Things differently where all of a sudden the deadness of the world, the world in sin, is starting to bloom. 
Little flowers are there. The birds are returning back to the UK. As we see these things, we know that something is changing, that ultimately we are heading to a point where this, these glimmers of heat will turn into a full-bloom summer. Amen? And I mean that from the perspective, let's have a summer. <laughs> but we are heading as believers to summer. To where the fullness of the earth in all its bloom will now shine and radiate in our, where we now feel the heat that is life-giving. And the coldness of the world is, is the furthest thing from our mind. So as Christians, as we suffer damage, as we as those that layer of that, that layer of our biological existence gives way, ultimately, the spring to summer now also gives way into our own lives. And therefore, when we find out what lies behind Paul's word is that this whole idea that I realize that even as one aspect of my life is now being attacked and damaged, there's another part of my life that is actually being more and more revealed through the fact that I can now place my hope Realistically, I don't want to place my hope in the place where, where, where autumn is turning into winter. I'm going to be disappointed. Paul said recently, you know, earlier in his epistle that he was in despair. He's now been honest about there has been times in my life where I really thought that God had abandoned me. But at this point in his life, he now knows that those times when in his ministry, he felt that he was alone and he didn't actually have, he, 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 he didn't see things correctly, that he despaired, that he thought that the ministry was going was gonna, to was gonna collapse. He realized actually that was God revealing to him that it actually wasn't about him. And it wasn't about his ability to be able to carry these things out. So that even when you see the latter Paul, even prison couldn't bind him. And we sit reading this epistle now, this letter now, on the basis of the fact that even prison, Paul reached out and couldn't see, this will not get me down. And when you read the latter chapters of Acts, of him looking at the opportunity of getting a free ride to Rome to be able to preach the gospel, he even saw that as a plus. The crisis in our lives can no doubt lick us they can be really heavy blows. But they can also reveal some real hope. The hope that you can't get when you really believe that it's all about you. That it's really me that's actually doing this. There is a perspective here in these verses and in other verses in the Bible, but as we focus on this, that will actually help you to realize that without those crises, you will never have this perspective. Hope cannot be born out of self-confidence. Because it will be a foolish hope. An autumn to winter type of hope. You're on top now. Will you be on top next, next year? You know, from a football perspective, Man City was on top last year, right? In question now. As Kipling said, isn't it? No one, is in, no one really is in a perpetual victory. No one ever really is in perpetual defeat. But yet, Paul writes, we can be more than conquerors. We can already know the outcome. Moving on. So always carrying in the body of Jesus, the, de the, the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also be manifest in our bodies. And this is now where we get to the resurrection, the significance of the resurrection in Paul's ministry, in Paul's life, where he says that as I'm experiencing death, as I'm given over to physical death, that ultimately there is a spiritual life that is now renewing myself and allowing me to continue on. 
So now he's getting into the theology of what really is going on behind the being perplexed, being afflicted. He's now getting behind this and he's now saying, it's Jesus' resurrection that is giving me a hope to be able to continue on. Because what he sees in the resurrection is that even as Christ gave himself, a, a, a seed does not bloom unless it falls to the earth and dies. It's like the, the adage we use of, you cannot have your cake and eat it too. And it, and it brings to mind the whole idea of us looking at a seed and this is very similar to what Paul is doing, but very quite different to what he's doing in 1 Corinthians 15, where he's talking about the whole idea that this life is not to be compared. And it's like us looking at a seed and thinking, isn't it look so beautiful? When you buy seeds, they're the least interesting thing you could possibly look at. But when you see the picture on the front, you know, you buy the seeds from the shop, what you're seeing is what it really ought to be. And ultimately, we can be buying seeds and putting them on our, on our shelves and saying, don't the seeds look great? And you, wanna, you almost want to grab that person and say, but the potential of that seed, if you plant it and let it die, is that it will give real life. You will see its real potential. And there is real reason why Paul <laughs> there's real potential. And that's what Paul wants us to see. We can't sit around just looking at the cake thinking that ultimately the best thing I can do is just look at it. The proof is in the tasting. Because it tastes good. And what he also is alluding to is the fact that you can only know this. And this is me, me going back over this point again. You can only know this truth subjectively when you're going through it. Before, all we do is we know it objectively. We know that, yes, God will sustain me. I know God will look after me. I know somehow that God will get me through all the rest of it. And we... We don't really feel connected sometimes to objective truths, right? The same way we can hear the whole idea, I love you and all the rest of it, that we, we hear that objectively, but ultimately it always leads to, but show me that you love me. Subjectively, show me how that, what that feels like. Objectively, we can know the truth. We can know what it actually is that God is doing in our lives. Good theology but no lived-out gospel life. It is only through those difficult times you will connect with that subjectively and know it for yourselves. I know God will sustain me because he's doing it right now. Right now, it's not me in church. It's, it's the Spirit of God that has given me power in my legs to now move here. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. Paul is encouraging us to experience this. Not that he's asking us to go into difficult times. He's saying that when you are in difficult times and people are prone to despise you and say, God really isn't with you, he says, they have no idea that ultimately you have really died and failed and it's now God who is living in you that is sustaining you and is in front of their eyes. Do you see the parallels here about how the Son of Man can come and be in the midst of the temple and says, here is God in his temple and they will miss it. God will never look like you. 
I've read Moses. He's like a big burning, big burning mountain and so terrifying and big dark clouds. You don't look terrifying. You can be living proof in front of someone's eyes that God is alive and well and sustaining you and people will not know it. You are proof. Because you know you gave up. You are over, you are finished, and yet here you are. God has brought me here. God has kept him. And this is the problem of the gospel, is that the proofs that it offers are not the proofs that we're really actually looking for. He goes on to say, for we are, we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. This is that dying daily. And it's also showing the real marks of apostleship is that you realize that ultimately without some real sacrifice, you will not be able to see the life given to people. You know, Paul talks about traveling in the, um, in the ancient world and, and in other places he goes into great details of what it is he actually goes through to preach the gospel. You know, the ancient world was a bit more like what Libya is like today. There were vast areas in which there are no police, no army to call upon to be able to say, can you help me out, please? You might say it's a bit like the Old West in the, in the USA where, you know, you had to kind of make your own justice. That going on the road and being able to walk from one place to another was to risk to be captured by bandits, to be robbed. Much like modern missionary today, when you think about them going to certain regions, right? You can't look at the fact that you're going to suffer as being a good reason as not to go. But it's going to be difficult if you have a certain hermeneutic, if you're trying to think that, well, God's got to kind of provide every single resource and every kind of comfort, then you won't go. Paul is actually saying the suffering is going to be good because actually you'll get to a point where as you're making your way to do those things, you will know that it will no longer be you doing them. And that way he's saying the toughness of going is a necessity. Because you've got to die on that road at some point. So that the ministry of the gospel, the purest gospel, that this is Christ alone, might come out. And this is why he makes a statement in verse 12. So death is at work in us, but life in you. He says that like Jesus, as he gave his life in order to give, gave his life to give life to the church, so it is that as apostles, we follow that style of ministry where we, with servant hearts, give our lives for you. We wash your feet so that you may walk clean. This is the model of leadership he presents to them, just like Christ. We suffer and we die so that you might live. So that you might then do the same. Die so that someone else might live. Disciples making disciples. Which we're all called to, right? There's no professional ministry here, right? We do understand that, right? Amen. So as Jesus gave himself on the cross in order to give life to the church, so also the the suffering apostles point to Christ as a model of leadership. So now he talks about faith speaking, and this kind of jumps out as a something quite different, but he now quoting from Psalms 116, verse 10. Since 
We have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. I believed and so I spoke. So we also believe and we also speak. And so what does this look like? Well, it's just as I said, is that faith comes into action. Faith isn't just something that we speak. And the best picture I can give of this is, is 1 Samuel 17, where David now comes into the battlefield. And obviously, there's numerous places I can go, but I like the life of David. And I, and I want to see what faith in action looks like. David comes as a young man, no doubt as a teenager, into the battlefield, and he sees Goliath speaking all kinds of nonsense about Israel and about Israel's God. And he looks at this guy, and, and he, he's looking at the, all the inaction around him. And then he says, as he's now speaking to these guys, well, well, what will be done for the man? And it's almost like when you understand the life of David, when he says this, what will be done for the man that actually gets this guy off the field? Almost like, wouldn't there be something in it for you? Like to stir him up by at least looking at what the reward could possibly be. And it's like they, that he's a liar. His bigger brother comes up to him and says, you need to keep your mouth shut. And David looks at him and in the translation I like, and says, is there not a cause? Here's a young man speaking to his revered older brother and saying, you're telling me to shut up, but there is a cause to be fought. So he says, all right, I give up trying to rouse you guys to do something. Let me put on the, let me go and do something and remove this guy from the field. Faith speaks and believes. Because David knew that God wanted this uncircumcised Philistine to be removed from the field. And he was hoping someone else would do it. So he decided to act and says, faith needs to act. And I believe that God wants this guy removed. But if you understand the story of David and Goliath, realistically, Goliath is actually David. It's God who removed him from the field. In other words, Goliath hadn't had a chance. And David knew it. Because again, we're looking at the earthly. We can interpret that story wrong. Because Goliath was not the giant on that field that day. Because David makes it clear, God will remove you. And then I will take your head off. I like that illustration because faith believes and they act. And this is what they, Paul is saying. i got to do this. Like Elijah, isn't it? Or Jeremiah, where if I don't preach the word, it's like fire shut up in my bones. i got to do the thing even though it's going to hurt me and put me into problems. Even if it's going to lose me jobs, lose me relatives, and lose me friendships. Faith acts. Because again, as you go into verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Faith has complete confidence that the same power as we look at the resurrection that raised Jesus to vindicate him will also raise us. And vindicate us. We may, we may even lose our lives. But that's not the end of vindication. We don't believe in a mystical resurrection. 
I don't know if you ever saw that um, Killing Jesus um, miniseries a couple of, no, actually, no, 2015, four years ago, where you kind of had this mystical Jesus who didn't really actually, you know, kind of touch, laid hands on people, but you never really saw them healed, you know? Then you see the, the, the end on the Resurrection Sunday where, you know, the, the apostles didn't go to the tomb. They just kind of looked in the air and saw the wind blowing and, and kind of felt like, you know, well, he's alive in us. You know, he's alive in us. We, that, that's the type of resurrection we believe in. Very practical, very, you know, very normal, you know, that, you know, like Che, you know, the revolution lives on in the people. He's inspired. <laughs> we don't believe in that type of resurrection, that the lever lives in our hearts. Though obviously he does live in our hearts. But he lived to be the down, the, the, the down payment of the fact that we will also live. We are living, but we will move into life. Zoe life. True life. That we may live abundantly. Not just live, but live abundantly. And so we do not lose heart. So for the sake of your sake, also the grace extends to more and more people that may increase thanksgiving. And so as the gospel goes, and more and more people come, to the knowledge of God, then that thanksgiving goes to God. And so it doesn't go to Paul, it goes to God. That's why, you know, when Goliath goes down, it's praise to God. Not to David, who had the initiative. It's about being realistic about what is happening as these things do, as these things carry on. So we do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self, looking at verse 16 now, is being renewed day by day. This brings us back to that spring, summer, autumn, winter. And I, I want to leave you here with, a, again, another illustration, but maybe a helpful one. And, and you know, God bless the ministry of, of David Garland, who, who, who added this to his commentary, where he saw a similarity to the, to the book written by um, Oscar Wilde, the picture or the portrait of Dorian Gray. An interesting book and worth a read if you ever get the opportunity because it speaks something profound about the nature of what if we could live our lives. Here's a man who, who, who has a portrait painted of him. And he looks at that picture and he says, this picture will never, it kind of captures him in the picture of perfect youth. He was an attractive man. And Dorian looks at the picture and he says, this picture will, has captured me and will always remain this way, but I will grow old and die. And to some extent, he was envying the fact that the picture would have a perpetual influence on people and, and, and will not lose its youth. But then, miraculously, the picture now swapped places with him. It's like, I guess it's like those, those transfer things where you see that the young person goes into the old person and the rest of it. And the rest of the movie now plays out, the rest of the book story plays out with him actually going to live, continuing to live his life in all kinds of debauchery and yet he never loses his youthful, virginal look. So even though his reputation has spread abroad that he is a, a really really debauched man, to look at him, you would never believe that this is the man that had done these things. And so you see various characters looking and marveling at the fact that this, we've heard so much about this man's reputation, but yet here he looks. And yet the picture is the one that becomes all marred with the sin of his life. And he hides it away in an attic. And lets nobody see his true self. Garland says, for the Christian, it's like the reverse. It's like the picture and the investment of our, our spiritual selves, our spiritual bodies that is yet to come, that actually is the true reality of who we are. We are being marred and we are being, you know, the, the trials of this life get us and we are getting old. The sins in our life mar us and, and wound us to the point where we feel like 
but yet there is an earthly treasure of who we really are seated, as Paul would say in Ephesians, in heavenly places in which we are not being stained because every single blow is going on Christ. And that heavenly picture of who we will be is being preserved for us. And we cannot lose it. these light momentary afflictions is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That weightiness of there. The more difficult the trial, the more glorious the triumph. The better the testimony. Who wants a testimony where you pretty much haven't been through nothing, haven't really accomplished much, but to be able to present a life that has proved the things in which you believe is, is, is so much more to be preferred. And what I picture here is something that I, I, I hope that you can also capture as well. Maybe secondarily, but primarily it's, just, it's to be able to see the value of spiritual things. But the zeal and the vigor in which you live your life now is building that, is building that weightiness of what eternity will be for you. And I say momentum because if you, if you understand the momentum, if you, are, if you are limping to the end of your life in your Christian walk, I don't know what that would look like for you in eternity. Speaking of rewards, speaking of the fact that, you know, the regrets one might have, even in the new kingdom, even, even spiritual regrets we might have, in the new kingdom, if we have not run that race, as an athlete would, as Paul gives us in his own Valor Victory, where you're running full out to the end to try and get there quicker. And if your momentum is such that you, you really don't want to leave too quickly, and again, this is not about begging death, but if we don't have that momentum where the value of that which is to come has very little, makes very little difference to us, then what that might look like for you might be very different for someone else who ran full out. In terms of experiences. That momentum that you go, I'm going to go full on. leads directly into eternity. Will your life be weighty? Will that glory be weighty? How much crowns will you be able to throw before the feet of the Lord? I leave that with you. As we look to the things that are seen but not but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I hope that we can have a balanced life, that we will live a good life, have good careers do all that we can to have the best and healthiest life we possibly can have. Do that which we can to make this world better than how we have met it. Do what we can in our communities to make them better places. But I also pray that we will not do that at the expense of devaluing the spiritual heritage that we actually have. To cut into the momentum that we can possibly have that will lead us into eternity. I believe that if we were to err on breaking that tension, I would say it's better to err. Though obviously not completely healthy, to err on the side 
of putting greater value and greater emphasis on the spiritual. Because at least that's the direction you're heading in. The spirituals and the, the Puritans never necessarily had it all wrong in this, regard, in this regards. To kind of have a very light hand on the material. Because I believe this is what Paul says as you look onto the, the building up of his argument right into the next chapter about using tents now instead of jars of clay. Read it as homework. Tents that this life offers. He says, I would, in 5.8, I would rather be with the Lord. If I had to choose, I would rather be with the Lord. I believe that I need to stand where the Apostle Paul stands. If I had to choose between here and now and, and, the, and the hereafter, I will choose to be with the Lord. If you're finished with me here, Lord, that is. As he builds this argument in, in the next chapter, the life in tents never held as much security as living within the kingdom and the fortified walls. And again, maybe... For those who understood the life of the ancient kingdom, and we obviously we don't live in, you know, hamlets like back in the day where, you know, walled villages where, you know, you'd go in there and you have a wall for at least some kind of defense. None of that makes sense. We don't see walls around there. We guess we have walls around our houses. But ultimately, that illustration was again to go to show you that the security of this tent is, is a very precarious one. Life in the tent was put you, subjected you to wild animals, subjected you to bandits. But life within the context of the, of the walled city, the walled kingdom, gave ultimate security. So I leave this with you on this Resurrection Sunday, how Paul saw the resurrection as a means of understanding that his ministry had greater value because even though Christ indeed died and suffered so that people looked at him and said, he possibly can't be the Messiah, he's dying on the cross. But even as the Jews saw him as such, that ultimately the vindication came and he resurrected because though he was a suffering servant, he was also a glorious Messiah who brought life not only to himself but to all who are called his church today. So hopefully we can take that with us and say, how might I apply the resurrection? I won't despise my difficult times. I will see that as an opportunity for Christ to shine in me. I won't really knock it. I won't give myself a tough time if I find my life moving more and more closer to winter. Because I know that there's a part of me which is moving closer and closer to summer that we can have that joy and that confidence that this is who and what our God is doing in our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful today because, again, this is the resurrection of our Lord in which we celebrate. And, Lord, as we give you our ears and our hearts, say, Lord God, I pray, Father, along with my, with, with my brethren here, then, Lord, that you will do a work in us to reevaluate our lives to whatever degree we need to, dear Lord God, to reorganize our priorities. But Lord, not to just do so physically, but to do it, Lord God, by making a decision about how I will organize my life and how I organize my priorities, even if it is countercultural. Even if others are willing to look at the spiritual activity and say that, well, what does prayer do? What does the reading of scripture do? What does coming together do that practically benefits my life? Well, then, Lord, I pray that this will transform not only how we see ourselves in suffering, but how we treat even the church of the living God. That we will have a new perspective on the spiritual things, dear Lord God, in which you've given for us to do. That our prayer lives will change. Our dedication to the word will change. Our dedication to the church will change. And our attitude towards suffering will ultimately change because we will see you at work in us. And we won't, be a, we won't be afraid as others are afraid that they will get to the end of themselves. 
because they only have an understanding that is that, well, I'm a biological entity. I don't have anything else to give. If my body fails, and that's it. But the Lord, that we will be the type of people who will see that the getting to the end of ourselves is, is probably the best thing we possibly could do. So when our human resources fail, us then, Lord God, let us be like Paul, who was able to say, but when I am weak, then he is strong. And that we won't have such a precious love for jars of clay. But Lord, really invest in the fact that we have a treasure that lies within. Thank you, Father, for the things you've taught us this morning. I pray that we will use it to your, to your glory and honor. In Jesus' name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.